Welcome to America's First Warriors, stories of today's airmen and guardians. In celebration of Native American Heritage Month, this five-episode series explores the stories of members of the Air and Space Force through candid conversations centering around their individual backgrounds and culture. By gaining a better understanding of the members of our total force, we become a more rich and ready team. I'm your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Legvold, Command Chief of the 133rd Airlift Wing, Minnesota Air National Guard. Captain Miranda Simmons is a public affairs officer stationed at Hallman, New Mexico. She's kicking off our five-part series, sharing stories of Native Americans serving in the Air and Space Forces. A former enlisted person, and now she's a commissioned officer and part of the Navajo Nation. Captain Simmons, thanks for joining me on America's First Warriors, stories of today's airmen and guardians. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. So normally when we hear the word captain, we think of an officer with who's a little new in their career, but you've been serving for 18 years already. So tell us a little bit about how you came to join the Air Force back in 2004. Oh, goodness. Um, well, it's actually, actually quite an interesting journey. Um, I originally was at the University of New Mexico um, in my sophomore year of college. And um, no one in my family has ever served in the military. Um, at that time, I couldn't have told you the difference between uh, the services. Um, but I ran into a recruiter, um, an Air Force recruiter, and um, just felt inspired, but also naturally drawn to um, wanting to serve after our after my conversation with him. Um, so then I enlisted and uh, I got picked up to be a paralegal, which at the time uh, had just opened up to non-prior service airmen. Um, and then after that, I got stationed at Charleston as my first assignment and um, absolutely loved it. Um, just appreciated the experience and knew it was something that I wanted to stick with. Um, and honestly had some great mentors and that's kind of when I decided that I knew I wanted to commission eventually. Who were the mentors that drew you into commissioning back at Charleston Air Force Base? Um, so there was a, an SJA, so a staff judge advocate, um, Lieutenant Colonel Gil, uh, Robert, and he just, um, I remember my first week there and he sat me down and he kind of, you know, asked me about my background, my experience, um, just, you know, what you would expect of a leader. He just wanted to get to know Miranda and why I was there and what my goals were. And um, he started to share a lot with me about commissioning and different oppor educational opportunities um, offered through the Air Force because I knew that um, I didn't, I wanted to continue going to school and not just stop with my bachelor's, but, you know, continue as much education as I could. Um, and then I had a chief master sergeant, uh, who Thornton, chief master sergeant Thornton, who took me under her wing and, um, she was like my mom away from home, taught me everything about finances, retirement, um, just everything and about air force writing. Um, and so she just kind of helped, helped me navigate my journey as I was preparing to eventually commission. Sounds like you grew a lot in just your normal Air Force type skills, but also in uh, confidence as a young person, not quite done with college. Am I, am I right in that? You finished a little later, yeah. right? 
I did. Um, so I finished uh, two years after joining the Air Force. Wonderful. And after those two years, you've also been to a lot of different bases, Korea, Luke Air Force Base, the National Capital Region. Um, I, there's just a ton that more, you've been to. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm currently on my eighth assignment and about to head to my ninth one uh, over the summer. Fantastic. That's a lot of traveling. Which one's been your favorite so far? Oh, my goodness. Um, honestly, I, I don't think I have a favorite. I, every assignment has uh, presented some great opportunities um, for my own growth and then also for my family. So I, I, there's something special about each one. Absolutely. You shared with me that uh, one of the bases you've been to is in my neck of the woods here in the Midwest at Ellsworth Air Force Base in South Dakota. And you really accomplished some fantastic things honoring uh, your heritage and culture as a Native American. Uh, tell me about the journey that you had at Ellsworth. Um, so Ellsworth was my first assignment um, as an officer after I commissioned into public affairs. And uh, great assignment, um, kind of unique in that the, uh, you know, normally you get your first assignment as a public affairs officer and you get to go through upgrade training and kind of learn your job. Um, but I, you know, the, the person that was then the PA chief was uh, PCSing, so they they're like, oh, get comfortable. Uh, you get to lead the PA office. Um, so as a PAO, I got to, you know, learn a lot very fast, uh, but had a great team out there. And then um, being in an environment where, you know, there were a lot of Native Americans um, either serving or living in the local community. Um, and that was different for me because most of the places that I had been stationed um, there wasn't a, there wasn't a, a large uh, Native American community, so it was really unique. Um, so it, there were great opportunities to kind of network with the local reservation there, but then were, there were also some challenges, um, personally and professionally, uh, kind of navigating in that environment. Um, but like you said, we got we got to do some amazing things. Fantastic. You you are a member of the Navajo Nation, and that is not the the cultural heritage shared in the Ellsworth Air Force Base region. How was that navigating uh, two different uh, Native American communities, yours and then the one that was local? Uh, it was actually really interesting. Um, so I originally... Um, did a little bit of research uh, because my mom is, or at the time she was a tribal official. So she was an elected representative. And um, when I was getting, when I found out I was getting stationed there, she told me a lot about the the Native American communities that were out there. And she had traveled there before and had met some people, um, especially in, you know, what she was doing at that time. And so as she was sharing her stories with me and kind of educating me on the tribes that were out there, um, when I got there, I knew that I wanted to learn more and kind of get immersed in their culture as well. Um, there are some parallels across all of the different tribes, but obviously each is unique. Um, and so at the first opportunity, I reached out uh, to one of the tribal officials out at the Pine Ridge uh, Indian Reservation, which was the closest uh, to Ellsworth. and. Uh, met with them and just kind of 
wanted to learn more and figure out, you know, what opportunities there were to kind of bring together the Indian reservation and the base community. Did you meet any uh, resistance going into that community as a Navajo or, or were they very welcoming? You, you seem to do your homework in that, but there's still, like you said, there's some parallels and there's some differences. Um, yeah, it was, um, they were very welcoming. Um, they asked a lot of questions, honestly, uh, with me being in the military and they had a lot of questions about, you know, me being an officer versus being enlisted, um, because most of their experience had been, you know, people from the, from Pine Ridge, uh, enlisting into the air force rather than pursuing commissioning. So there were a lot of, um, a lot of opportunities for us to learn about each other. Um, but then the challenges really came because, and not just um, with Pine Ridge specifically, but just the Native American culture in general is um, my husband is black, my kids are biracial. And so trying to navigate, you know, the the customs in, in that respect and trying to bridge the bridge the gap there was was a bit of a challenge. But eventually they they really came to welcome you and you did some fantastic uh, honoring of their culture, especially one of their own. You learned a lot about uh, Ola Mildred Rexrote, a fantastic name. I I could say it all day, Um, but she has a really great story and a story that uh, had her uh, roots there in South Dakota as eventually she became a wasp pilot. Tell us about her. Um, well, you're you're right. Millie's story was um, so inspiring, and it it actually uh, when I learned about Millie, um, she was still living at the time, but she was in a nursing home, in a veterans nursing home, in um, Rapid City or near Rapid City. And when I found this out, uh, I managed to track down her only son. Um, and asked for permission to go visit with her in the nursing home. Um, and so I got to meet her um, and, um, you know, learn more about her and hear stories from the staff at the nursing home, um, at the vet's home. And it was, um, it was really, really interesting. Um, and it was such a privilege to be able to meet her, but she ended up passing away a couple of weeks after our first meeting. Um, and that was kind of what sparked um, me wanting to kind of take the lead on a building memorialization um, because, you know, we, we don't, I didn't hear a lot about Native Americans or actually I didn't hear anything about Native Americans serving um, as a wasp pilot. So to hear her story and then to see someone from the local community achieve so much um, I, I felt like we, we had to honor her in some way. And so I felt the best approach was through a building memorialization. So if I'm driving on to Ellsworth Air Force Base, where would I find her building? Um, so if you go to the flight line side, it is the airfield operations building. And so whenever there are DVs or any military flights into Ellsworth Air Force Base, um, they all enter through the Millie Rex Rope building. And so inside the building, there's a plaque that kind of details her service. Um, and then it has a photo of her as well. Fantastic way of honoring a great American who did great things during World War II uh, and then beyond. She, 
I did a little bit of research and read about her and, and she just had a fantastic, uh, she left a fantastic legacy for others to follow. And when you got out to the reservation and everybody started learning from you, here's two Air Force officers that are uh, about 88, 80 years in difference, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. What similarities did you find with Millie as an Air Force officer, as a female Air Force officer, as a female Native American Air Force officer? Um, I would just say the dedication. Um, <clears throat> coming up, uh, growing up on an Indian reservation, um, I I learned that it takes a community, it takes a village, not just to raise kids, but to just raise families in general. And so everyone contributes, everyone is dedicated to, you know, bringing up the community, not just improving yourself. And so I kind of saw the same uh, parallels when I was doing my research on Millie and kind of learning a lot about her was that was the sense that I got from her service and her personality was, it was, how can I bring up others? How can I make it better? Um, and so the level of dedication when it comes to the group as a whole, that, that's kind of what I, what I saw in myself. And I, it was just, um, it was heartwarming to know that, you know, despite, you know, the, the gap in age, like that, that foundational um, value just exists. And you get to carry that on. Is that where you really? Is that where you really got engaged in and passionate about uh, improving our diversity and inclusion initiatives in the Air Force? Um, so it, I would say it definitely got stronger at that point. Um, all through high school, uh, through my undergraduate. Um, I have always been passionate about um, underrepresented minorities in general, um, and what can I do to make it better? Um, I and what sparked that is my own upbringing. I did not grow up in with all of the opportunities ahead of me. I grew up in a on a rural reservation. Um, my mom was a single parent for the longest time, worked two to three jobs um, just to make ends meet for us, and so knowing what the struggle could be like, I knew that no matter what I wanted to make a difference or, you know, help underrepresented minorities in any way that I could. Tell us a little bit about that experience growing up on the reservation. You mentioned there wasn't a lot to go around and your mom worked really, really hard. And I'm sure you learned some fantastic values from her. Um, and then you got to Ellsworth and you saw the Pine Ridge Reservation, which which I know is one of the poorest, if not the poorest, uh, reservation. Uh, tell us how that upbringing shaped you uh, to become the Air Force officer that you are. Um, growing up on a reservation is different. Um, there are very limited resources. Um, in order to get to, you know, a larger city, um, you have to have a vehicle. Like walking is a is a challenge. Um, and so there's a very small population. Everyone knows everyone and everyone pitches in to help out. Um, and so no matter where I went in our little neighborhood, like I knew everyone. I knew 
all of the kids. I knew all of the parents. I knew all the grandparents. Um, and my great grandmother uh, did a lot to help raise us. And she instilled a lot of, you know, the values that I continue to carry to this day. And I think that I saw a lot of that when I went to Pine Ridge. Um, again, the reservation I grew up on is not, um, is not considered wealthy. Um, most of the people are struggling to make ends meet. And so to go to Pine Ridge Reservation um, in, in a different, to see a a tribe in a different area kind of faced with the same struggles that I experienced growing up. Um, it, it kind of, it was a reminder to myself that, you know, we, we all have something in common. And so when I got to Pine Ridge and I started to see like the elders, um, it felt like home in, in a weird way. Um, it felt like I knew them. It felt like instantly I was a part of the community and I just wanted to hear more about their stories. Um, so I guess that's the best way to describe it uh, was it felt like it felt like home. It felt like home. You um, you really touch kind of a chord where you say there there are some there's you said earlier there's some parallels, but then there's also this sense of connection and feeling apart feeling included. And when we spoke before uh, getting onto the podcast here, you talked a little bit about how uh, DNI initiatives, diversity and inclusion initiatives, and being a part of an inclusive organization really help our airmen and guardians well-being and mental health. Uh, how have you seen that tie in where if somebody grows up in an underrepresented underrepresented community, and then they join our, our armed forces and they they get this sense of community. How have you seen uh, that impact positively their mental health? Um, well, thank you for bringing that up. That is actually one of the main reasons why um, I'm passionate about DNI is that inclusion piece. Um, regardless of who we are talking about as humans, we have, um, you know, we have a desire to want to be a part of something, to be a part of a community, and. Most of the airmen that I have met throughout my career, uh, when I ask them, because I always want to know everyone's story, why did you join the Air Force? What did you do beforehand? Um, the the common theme is, you know, they they wanted to feel a sense of belonging to something bigger than themselves. And so, as I've been involved with uh, diversity and inclusion in some capacity, I have seen that really bring teams together. Um, you, it doesn't matter if like myself growing up on an Indian reservation in the, in a, in the rural part of New Mexico, um, when I came into the air force, it didn't matter what, you know, my experience, my background, um, my race, my education, none of that mattered to the legal office that I was assigned to. All they saw was, uh, then Airman Kellywood, who is here and we're going to help her feel like she belongs to this team. And so when you when you bring that to people and you show them that what you have to offer the team, whether it's at the flight, the squadron, the base level, um, you really create a connection for those people. And they feel inspired um, in a way that they might not get outside of the military. They might not get that same sense of belonging. 
um, you know, if they work at X corporation or X business. Um, so to see that uh, come to fruition in BNI at all of the different bases, it's um, it's exciting. It, it's amazing to see. It really, it really sends the message that the Air Force, that leaders out there, we care about our people, and we want them to be included. We we appreciate diversity, and we really understand um, the strength that that brings to our force. It really does. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, words that we use in the military, like lethality, words that we use um, to operationalize what we do and become more effective, and how that's only something that is boosted and strengthened through the very different people that join the Air Force and end up becoming a part of the Air Force family. Um, Absolutely. My big question, uh, when it comes on the side of diversity and inclusion, and I know that your perspective is shaped by where you have been and what you have done as a DNI officer and uh, as a public affairs officer, but you get a chance to look at it through the lens of somebody that is well honed and well well experienced. Are we getting it right when it comes to our diversity and inclusion efforts? I think that we are. I think that the Air Force has invested a lot, um, and Air Force and Space Force. Uh, I can say that we have invested a lot into diversity and inclusion, whether it's in training, whether it's in providing resources. Um, and I mean, you just take a look at uh, the different barriers analysis working groups. They are constantly looking at how are we getting after these diversity and inclusion issues? Um, are we making any progress and holding people accountable to the things that have been identified? Um, so we are definitely moving in the right direction. Um, and I and I can say that because I see the investments um, in my current role as the BNI manager for Holloman. Um, I get access to resources, which they say, you know, share it with your people, um, amplify this, push it out. So they, you know, we're, we're we're investing in the right things. I I love the this story and the idea that uh, you know we have resources. We push resources toward DNI initiatives. And you mentioned the barrier analysis uh, working group. And you and I are both a part of the Indigenous Nations Equality Team. When did you get involved with Inet? Um, I got involved with Inet about. I want to say two months after um, it stood up. So I found out about it through a news article on AF.mil. I follow the diversity and inclusion page on AF.mil. And, it, you know, I got an alert that there was a new article posted and I read through it. And I was like, this is amazing. Um, I think at any base I've been stationed at, I've met maybe at the most um, two people who were, you know, Native American. So to see a group um, was exciting, so I emailed and uh, got plugged in, and you know, have tried to be as active as I could be. It's been fun to listen and fun to watch, fun to listen, fun to participate in, and and watch that group grow not only in size but also in purpose and identifying new things to do as an organization and, and then just to be a part of uh, 
helping people share stories uh, for this month has been just fantastic. So speaking of stories, uh, you mentioned that you grew up on the Navajo reservation, and um, I don't know a whole bunch about how the community is broken up or delineated or articulated in the Navajo community. Can you share some of the unique cultural aspects and descriptors that make your culture different? Um, yeah, so most people, um, when they think about, you know, the different tribes across the U.S., um, and when I tell people, oh, I'm Navajo, they're like, okay, you must be from um, Arizona or, you know, northern Arizona region. Um, and the reason why most people associate that with Navajo is because that's where the Navajo Nation is. Um, but aside from the Navajo Nation, there are different um, Navajo reservations throughout the Southwest, um, which, you know, have been referred to as uh, chapters or communities, and they're used interchangeably. Um, so the reservation I grew up um, on is considered a chapter of the Navajo Nation. So although not on the, on the large Navajo Nation reservation, um, it is still considered uh, Navajo land, if you will. And if it's a chapter, um, is it more of a geographical description or is there, is there something that makes a, one chapter different than the other? Um, it's geographical, uh, primarily. Uh, language is pretty much the same. There may be um, a little bit of dialect um, differences, but essentially, um, you know, regardless of what Navajo reservation you grow up on, you speak Navajo. Um, that's that's the language you typically speak. Um, and the size is about, you know, a couple thousand. Uh, it's very, very small community. Um, and they, they have their own, um, like, chapter government. So they kind of, I, I guess the best way to equate it is if you have... Um, If you have like a numbered air force um, and the numbered air force has all of these different bases and wings um, in different regions, um, but they all essentially report to the NAF. Um, that's kind of the same thing is with all of the different Navajo chapters, um, essentially, quote unquote, our NAF would be the Navajo Nation. So they're kind of the overseers. They manage the overall Navajo Nation budget and kind of disperse that to all of the different chapters. That, that puts it in a, in a language that I can understand. Thank, thanks yeah. for doing that. <laughs> Your, the culture that you grew up in, um, you mentioned a close tie to your grandma. Uh, it is more of a matriarchal uh, society where the mother really is the head of the household. Is that is that accurate? Um, yeah, that that's been my experience um, my entire childhood. My great grandmother, um, my mom, very matriarchal. And my my heritage as a as a Scandinavian American, it, it's it's much more patriarchal, where the father is the head of the household and growing up on the reservation, but then going to college and joining the Air Force and uh, becoming a part of the uh, the bigger society where there was there ever dissonance between the way you were raised in a matriarchal household 
and the way uh, a lot of the others, the rest of society um, raises their kids in that patriarchal society. Was there ever dissonance in that? Um, I would say yes. It was a huge culture shock for me um, in the military in that sense, because I was raised to be very outspoken. I was raised to kind of take on like leadership roles. Um, and so I didn't see anything out of the norm about that. You know, I, I'd go to when I was in high school, you know, did sports, took the initiative um, and always spoke up. That's just the norm for me. Um, and then coming into the military, when I came in in 2004, um, I remember when I got to Charleston, there were not a lot of female senior leaders. Um, I saw a couple of like female lieutenants, female captains, but I don't recall ever seeing like a female commander or a female, uh, what is now a senior enlisted leader, whether at the squadron or group level. Um, mm -hmm. And then everyone in, in my career field um, at the time, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really normal, if you will, uh, for women to be so outspoken. Um, so that was a bit of a, a, a shock for me. Um, to, it was a shock for you, but it was, it was a shock for people that you worked with too, wasn't it? Um, it was, uh, so <laughs> it was different. Um, and that's why I really appreciated, um, my SJA at the time, because within, you know, a couple of days of me arriving and him sitting down and asking questions, um, I think that really helped put into perspective for him, uh, my background and where I come from and how it's influencing my behavior. Um, I wasn't ever disrespectful, but I was, um, I was opinionated. I had questions. Um, I, I had, I had a plan and he really, uh, understood that and helped me navigate that. He never tried to kind of make me change and adjust or assimilate, if you will. He just accepted it and was like, okay, let's hone that like in, in a, in a right way. That's going to help you succeed. It sounds like you had a good mentor and a good guide right there initially in in uh, not necessarily assimilating, but just putting your mark on how an airman can lead based on how they were raised and what makes them unique. What are some other mentors that you've had along your career that have just kind of mentors, allies, or sponsors in your career that you've kind of seen make a good difference when it comes to how especially our young women that are coming into the military are able to grow and thrive and make, um, make their mark, make their impact on our, on our air force and space force. Um, I will. So most recently I attended the women's initiative team, a uh, strategic offsite after the uh, AFA conference last month. And um, there were two individuals three individuals there who's, who I've known for a couple of years and just inspired me. Um, one was my previous commander at Lake and Heath, um, Lieutenant Colonel Mangum. And she was, um, she, she was bold. She was, um, she had no fear. And I admired that about her as a young Lieutenant. 
and her being a squadron commander. And she didn't just hold that in. She actually would host mentorship events, lunches, um, different professional development stuff with CGOs, and she'd open it up to people. Um, And she actually introduced me to a women's leadership group. Um, And we would pick a book every month, uh, a leadership book, and meet and talk about it. And um, and I really appreciated her for that, for introducing me to another network of, you know, very strong female leaders. Um, and then the second person I met or I ran back into during the, um, the WIT offsite was Lieutenant Colonel Donberg. And she was a fighter squadron commander. Um, she's an F-15 pilot. And she is doing amazing things, helping to lead um, initiatives within the aviation world to kind of, whether it's uniforms uh, for, you know, female pilots and just seeing her uh, take the initiative on a half level, like across the Department of the Air Force of what can we do to, to make it equal for women. Um, and she inspires me as a mom and as, a, as an officer. Um, because her husband is also military. And so just to see how they, um, you know, how they navigate the military to military dynamics and parenting at the same time. um, She, again, just inspires me and has helped keep me motivated. Um, And then the third one is a Major Sliney. And I met Major Sliney when I was an airman. No, I was a, I'm sorry. I was a tech sergeant, um, and I met her when I was stationed in North Carolina, and she was uh, one of the attorneys, and she was so nice, um, just always positive and always, like, focused on making things better. How can we make things better? And one during our conversation at Wit at the Wit offsite, we were talking about um, you know raising daughters and teaching them to be you know strong, independent, courageous little girls, and hopefully one day you know strong women. And um, we talked about eventually getting to the day where we don't have to think about our daughters being the first because that will be the norm. And I remember we ended that conversation and I was just like, I'm going to call my daughter because my daughter is so amazing and I want her to know that she's amazing and that when she grows up, it's not going to be weird that she's so amazing. I think that is just fantastic. And what words of empowerment to speak into uh, a young lady. Your daughter is six. Did I get that right? Yes, that's correct. Fantastic. Your six-year-old daughter is your hope that she's just not the first at anything, but she's the best? Yes. I want her to, you know, I don't want her to look around and feel like she has to try to find someone who looks like her, whether it's, you know, someone who's female, someone who's biracial. I just don't want her. I want her to look around and see representation um, in different forms. So critically important is to have the the good positive uh, representation around. I I was able to as a part of the National Guard uh, go to Washington D.C. for the inauguration, and I worked in an operations center 
And one of the airmen that was working with, sorry, she, she was a soldier working next to me. I take that back. She was an airman uh, from our, our uh, sister base in Minnesota. And I had the opportunity to just watch her out of the side of my eye when our new vice president took the oath of office. And uh, she got teary in that moment. And I, I didn't ask her the emotions, but just that, that idea of the first and being able to witness that. That's a powerful thing, isn't it? That is, yeah. I, yeah. My daughter had that same reaction. And it's so silly, but um, when the, uh, the Little Mermaid, the announcement came out that they were rolling out another uh, Little Mermaid and she saw the preview and she was so happy and she was like, mommy, she looks like me. And I was like, that's powerful at six years old. Certainly, certainly. What a, what a great world that you get to be a part of creating. I, another person that uh, I asked you, you know, what's, who's somebody that you've really, a historical figure that you identified with, strong, independent, trailblazing, fearless woman. Who was that for you? Um, the RGB, uh, powerful, confident. Um, I mean, a force to be reckoned with is what I thought of when I would see her when she would, um, you know, not not fall in line with what the majority was saying, but rather she knew where her values stood. She knew what she believed in and she understood that she wasn't going to deviate from what was right. You picked up a lot from that and those words of description just they kind of sound a whole lot like uh, a Captain Simmons that I've gotten to know over the last uh, 40 minutes here or so. So um, we are uh, we are celebrating um, uh, Native American Heritage Month this month. And a part of that is, is getting people to tell their stories. But at the end of a month, uh, I'm not sure what is going to change, but people are hopefully going to learn and maybe be inspired from stories like, like yours. What's the big message? What's the big, um, big thing you would want people to learn or maybe be inspired to do? differently after a month of celebration? I would say not just for Native American Heritage Month, but I would say every day throughout the year, um, I would challenge people to get to know the person beside you. Um, don't just ask uh, the basic, you know, surface level questions of how are you doing today? But instead get to know them, understand their background. Um, and uh, and understand that it's okay to not know, um, and it's okay to ask as long as you're being respectful. Sometimes I've had people come up to me and say, I don't know how to ask this, um, and I'm probably going to sound ignorant, but can you help me? Um, what kind of Indian are you? And I tell them, okay, well, actually, the proper way would be to ask, um, what tribe are you from? That may be a more respectful thing, but I appreciated that the person was willing to say, I don't know, can you help me be respectful and ask the right way? And so I challenge everyone, get, get to know someone new and really hear their story. 
what other good questions really bring out that story? Because what you're doing is you're describing somebody like me, uh, just curiously with an open heart, wanting to know somebody else's story. So what are, what are other good questions that folks like me can ask to learn? Um, I would say um, there is through Digital University, and I have to do a shameless plug for the resources because we talked about Air Force investing in diversity and inclusion. Um, there are tons of resources on Digital University that relate to um, DNI topics. So it can be how to ask questions of all of the different communities. So if you don't know a question for um, the LGBTQ community, if you don't know how to ask certain question of the Hispanic community, um, you can go to Digital University and they have all of those topics on there. Um, but I would say specific to um, Native American Heritage Month, some other questions that you can ask are um, not did you did you grow up in a teepee, but rather, um, you know, what what kind of what kind of homes um, are representative of your tribe? So, you know, some some communities have uh, longhouses, you know, for us in the Navajo community, um, a teepee is for ceremonial prayer purposes only. Um, so asking in that way. Um, ask um, about their language, uh, ask about um, kind of their, their foundational values and belief systems so that you can understand how that feeds into um, their service, how that feeds into their personality, how that feeds into their work ethic. Um, th those are just some basic questions that I can think of off the top of my head. Really good ways of just uh, approaching somebody to to just learn a little bit and, and doing it in a respectful way. What a great place to start. Can you give me the website again so that I don't go to the wrong spot? <laughs> no, it's okay. So if you go through Air Force Portal, it's Digital University. And so um, through there, you can do um, a search for different uh, DNI trainings as well. And then on the AF.mil website, um, there's a reading list. And for those who you know prefer videos or TED Talks, there's also TED Talks available um, about different DNI topics, whether, you know, things like bridging the generational gap, you know, sometimes you hear leaders are like, oh, airmen today are different than when we came up. Um, and so there are books about that. There are books about how to have difficult conversations um, about race. Uh, there are TED Talks about, um, like disability, how to talk about disability or how to navigate um, disability in the work environment. Sounds like a great place to start and a good place to learn. And um, speaking of that, thanks for being the great place to start for our five-part series on telling stories of airmen and guardians on America's First Warriors. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute honor and privilege. Thanks, Captain. Hey, I hope that you will join me uh, if you're listening. And Captain, I hope you will also join me for the next episode of America's First Warriors, where we'll get to talk to two airmen, uh, Staff Sergeant Carly Law and Staff Sergeant Marvis Lemire. Sorry, Senior Airman Carly Law and Staff Sergeant Marvis Lemire. I didn't just promote you, Airman Law. Sorry. Uh, they'll join me next week on the episode of America's First Warriors, stories of today's airmen and guardians. And until then, I'm Chief Master Sergeant Mark Legbold, the 133rd Airlift Wing Com Command Chief, 
of the Minnesota Air National Guard. Thanks again, Captain. And I hope you join me next time. Will do, sir. America's First Warriors, Stories of Today's Airmen and Guardians was sponsored by the Indigenous Nations Equality Team, an Air and Space Force Barrier Analysis Working Group. Background research and subject exploration was accomplished by Master Sergeant Francis Dupree, Buckley Space Force Base, and the 133rd Airlift Wing's Podcast Development Team. Special thanks to Master Sergeant Lacey Roberts for her technical and cultural guidance and to Ms. Amy Lovegren of the 133rd Airlift Wing's Public Affairs Team for her production expertise. Again, I've been your host, Chief Master Sergeant Mark Blakevold. <laughs>